Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Caroline Wagner. Professor Wagner's research is into the connections between science and technology on the one hand and society and public policy on the other with a particular focus on international collaborations. She's an associate professor at John Glenn College of Public Affairs in Columbus, Ohio, and her career has included work with the White House, the US Congress, the European Commission, and the United Nations. She's the author of two books so far, The New Invisible College in 2008, and then just a couple of years ago, The Collaborative Era in Science. And last but not least, she's now part of the Global Innovations and National Interests Project at the BRG Institute in California, which is examining the changing world of international collaboration in science and engineering and how policymakers can best respond to it. So, Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. I'm excited to be here. So that's quite a CV, or a resume, I should say. I guess it's not all in academia. That's correct, Toby. I started out my career as a policy analyst. Uh, My longest stint was with the Rand Corporation as a policy analyst, working mostly at that time for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as our client. Uh, But in between, I worked for the U.S. Congress several times uh, as a staffer as well as an analyst. Uh, And I also had the opportunity to live overseas several times uh, in the process, one time uh, with RAND in Europe. And that's when I worked with the European Commission. Uh, And then I also uh, happened into an opportunity to sit on uh, the United Nations Millennium Development Task Force on Science, Technology, and Innovation, where I advised the uh, United Nations on the MDGs and then afterwards on the SDGs uh, in their development. Right. But despite moving around a bit, your career has always been kind of pointing at the same area, so science and technology and uh, the world, I guess. And public policy. I'm very interested in how we establish our values as society, uh, particularly in emerging uh, areas where it's uh, not clear where we're going. I find that very exciting and interesting, and certainly we're in a time like that right now. Okay, well, that sounds very interesting to me too, so I guess I'm glad we're having this conversation. So this idea of um, the globalization, well, globalization in general, we hear a lot about the unstoppable march of globalization and how inevitable it is and how it impacts on all our lives. Can you say a little bit about how this has played out in the world of science and research? Yes, it's hard because we don't always have the right words to describe everything that's going on. But one of the things that we need to uh, acknowledge at the beginning is in order for policymakers to make good decisions uh, about instituting new policies or making new investments, is that they really need to understand the system that they are influencing. So one of the things that um, I have studied over time is the increasing international linkage among researchers themselves. So on one hand, we see governments establishing big science projects like CERN or big giant telescopes and things, um, international space stations. Those are highly visible projects and we can see them uh, and we call that international science, and rightly so. But under the waterline, let's say, uh, we see the tip of the iceberg is these big science projects. Underneath that, 
waterline are hundreds and hundreds of self-organized, self-identified projects that scientific researchers create themselves, right? They reach out to someone they know, they've worked with, they've met at a conference, um, someone who has a complementary capability to theirs and who will help them advance their research. And so what we see there is that these researchers really make up the bulk of international collaboration in science. So the things that we think of as international are important, but we don't see these other activities. I called it the new invisible college in my book in 2008, uh, because it really has been uh, rising, this kind of international connection among self organized, self-motivated, spontaneous scientific connections has been rising at just a spectacular rate in terms of numbers. So that number has gone up and up and up. And for most of the very advanced scientific countries, all of the growth of their scientific output is at the international level. So in other words, all new stuff coming out of the United States or Switzerland, Netherlands, UK is, is international. People are connecting to one another independent of national allegiances to their scientific research. So what we see is that that kind of activity has grown at a very, very rapid rate and constitutes a large percentage now of any kind of collaborative research and certainly outpaces any kind of big science activity. So that part, I don't know that we want to call it globalization. I tend to call it a global network. It's not international in the sense that nation to nation are arranging these things. Uh, and it's not necessarily global in the sense that finance is global um, or trade is global. But it has this kind of global character. And so I call it a global network. It's not necessarily top-down, command and controlled response. You uh, Swiss, Swiss person, you work with this French person. It, it's not as directed as that. And so we know that... There's a network of people that connect to one another or disconnect, as the case may be. So I call it a global network. Right. Yeah, interesting. So so you characterize these two levels of collaboration, so big international science projects on the one hand, which are very much government-led, and then collaborations between researchers, individual researchers on the other hand, which are mostly kind of more opportunistic. And I wonder if Coming from Europe, as I do, we have a model that's somewhere in between those two. So in the EU, as I'm sure you know, we have like a massive amount of research funding allocated by the European Union itself, which is not a nation state. And it's not all about, in fact, very little of it is about big science projects. But on the other hand, it is still a kind of state mandated requirement that international collaboration should happen. You don't get the money in most cases unless you're doing science across borders. So how does the European funding regime fit into your schema? So this is a great segue into discussing the influences of political decision making. At the time, that the, the EU, of course, is a very uh, important and influential funder, but still the nations themselves fund more uh, of their own activities. Uh, but the EU has this overlay on top of the nation states that encourages and really, in a sense, buys down the efficiency of self-organized research with a social goal or social slash political goal, right? The idea is to encourage these linkages and to encourage the inclusion of uh, Southern nations that at the time when the EU was beginning 
to um, fund research many decades ago now, um, they wanted to level out, let's say, or bring up the rear of um, different regions of Europe and deliberately encourage the kind of networking that we see occurring somewhat spontaneously, especially out of the United States. Now, that's not to say the United States doesn't have a similar approach. However, the U.S. does it slightly differently in that we have a program, for example, through the National Science Foundation called EPSCOR. EPSCOR, instead of requiring an inclusion of laggers, let's say, EPSCOR goes into states in the United States that are not operating at the levels of a Massachusetts or California and helps those states to bring up the rear, right, in order to encourage them to be part of the public research system. So it's a slightly different uh, way of doing things than the EU did, but the goal is somewhat the same, and that is to enhance uh, capacity uh, even among uh, countries that ha- didn't don't have necessarily frontier level or world-class level capacity. So that kind of political intervention is more on the policy side, in my view. Uh, those activities, in fact, I think the European Union can claim great success with that program. Uh, they have indeed created a European level of uh, cooperation. They brought up a lot of Uh, regions of Europe that weren't necessarily operating uh, at uh, world-class levels. So it's been very, very successful, but it is a political action, whereas the I would uh, consider it slightly differently from the self-organizing scientific uh, activities that um, scientists themselves engage in. Hmm. Okay. So then setting aside the, the political actions, whether those are between countries or at a, like a supranational level, um, let's focus on these individual collaborations. And what's behind this? Is it the result of policy decisions or is it more organic? It's highly organic because in a way, a nation, especially um, when public coffers are used to fund research, they tend to want to see the benefits of that research go to national public goods. So in a way, part of the reason I got into studying it in the first place is how counterintuitive it is. Because it was rising and rising and rising at a spectacular rate. And yet nations aren't really that interested in it. Uh, Aside from the big science projects that they are engaged in, they're not that keen on seeing their individual scientists link with somebody from another country when it's not necessarily clear where the benefit accrues. So who's benefiting when our scientists, let's say here in Ohio, are working with researchers in Malaysia Who's benefiting from that and how would you count it? And of course, as we know, everybody wants to be able to account for public funds and their benefit to the taxpayer. So we have this problem, let's say, not problem, but a challenge um, in which uh, we have to see the extent to which these kinds of international activities are benefiting. Now, in the United States and Europe is the same. The funding is given to researchers themselves with the idea that they will put it to good use towards the scientific goals they've enumerated in their proposals. So they are given funding in part out of merit, in part out of aspiration, and part according to the interests of government to fund certain things. So we know that those um, different pieces of the system kind of merge together in making decisions and allocating and adjudicating among kind of competing priorities for funding. But then researchers can connect with whom they wish. You know, they can kind of 
speed date and marry you know anybody they want to across the the scientific uh, world, scientific spectrum. And so we see that as being one feature of this uh, network dynamic. That is that researchers will look around. Uh, we call it local search. They'll look around and say, "Who do I know that can help?" my research and complement my work or uh, speed it up or add a component that I don't have. So that's one aspect of it. And that is kind of the motivation of the individual researcher themselves. The second aspect of this answer to your question is that over the last 40 years, let's say many, many, many nations have invested in research and development, building their own national capacity to conduct good solid research and development, and to make that work visible to others in a scientific community. So where you can have scientific capacity in nations, unless you make it visible, nobody is really going to see it. If you're not seen, people aren't going to reward you with citations and funding, and you're not going to be visible to connect with someone else. And so what we see is that there's a dynamic of communication going on here that people must communicate in order to participate in the network. And that is true at the local level, regional level, statewide level, international level. And so we have seen that where uh, in 1980, seven nations of the world were responsible for 90% of research and development spending. Now, if you take that same 90%, you would find 25 nations participating at that level. And so the idea of um, the original uh, Endless Frontier written in the United States in 1948, um, that we have this endless frontier of knowledge, right? There are many more actors working at the frontiers than was the case in 1980. And so at the same time then that we say, okay, the U.S. is at the frontier. Switzerland, Netherlands, U.K., uh, Japan are at the frontiers, right? Well, now what we have is a lot of people around the world doing really interesting and good research. And so there's lots more people to link to. So as these researchers look outside themselves and say, okay, Hmm, who's going to complement this research or do they have the equipment I need to help me with or they have this data I could use, right? So they look around and the local search in a way is vastly broader. They can look all over the world if these countries and regions and um, institutions have stuck their heads up into that global network to say, hey, I'm doing this work, uh, come and take a look. So we see that there's this kind of dual dynamic, right? So researchers are always going to look around and say, you know, who's working with whom uh, and how do I enhance my research? Um, and then at the same time, we've had these nations make this investment. And so we have lots more people and lots more knowledge available to us than was the case 40 years ago. And so we've come into a different world. Now, I think enhancing that or maybe as a catalyst to that, we've had the rise of the Internet. We've had cheap travel. Um, and so all of these aspects kind of come together. They didn't cause the global network to emerge, but they do enhance it and catalyze it. So the um, availability of people, uh, we've always seen scientists back back from the beginning of the, the first invisible college in the UK and England uh, in the 17th century. They wrote letters to one another and pamphlets back and forth. So 
you know, before the internet, but we're still doing the same thing. We're just doing it faster. And so, um, and we're able to move around much more easily. And so people are able to connect and meet and find out about one another's work much more rapidly. And so that's kind of a third aspect of the, the dynamic that's going on here. And do you, do we see measurable results from this? Is science going faster than it was before? Are we discovering more stuff? Are we writing more? What's changing? So great question, always of interest to anyone who's studying science, is the number of publications that are coming out. Now we know uh, from uh, just counting, right, that in 1996, there were under a million um, published science and engineering articles in the year. Um, But in 2018, there were 2.5 million articles published as they are counted in curated databases. So what we see is that um, in this 2.5 million in 2018 uh, represents more than, well, more than double since 96. Uh, It's more than 7,000 articles a day, and that's not even counting preprints. We saw that preprints, that is non-peer-reviewed materials that are published on platforms, became extremely important during COVID times, where uh, people needed to know what was happening very rapidly, on uh, people posted material on preprint servers. So there was just a tremendous amount more published, uh, just a spectacular amount published on COVID in a really, really short amount of time. So um, that is one of the main measures that countries will use. Okay, so there's more science. But I mean, if you're also saying that a whole bunch more countries have joined the top ranks of global science anyway, isn't that just what we'd expect? Do we know how many of these extra publications are caused by more international collaboration rather than just more activity? So then you have to say, okay, if we have a certain percentage of these that are international, internationally co-authored, in fact, the most highly cited work is internationally co-authored and vice versa, highly international is more highly cited. Uh, So we know that. So then we have to say, okay, does that mean uh, that both countries can count the citations and say UK gets full count, US gets full count, or you know Germany gets full count, and so on? Uh, and all of these are, are issues and questions that come up, you know, as people get into the minutia of counting. But one of the things that a team and I did, uh, this was also an international team of people <laughs> cooperating, um, but what we did was um, give each nation a fractional count. So let's say it's uh, Japan, UK, US, and each gets a third. And then we take the citations to that article and say, okay, you get a third, third, and third. And we counted it that way to try to say, is there a way to tell whether or not nations that are collaborating internationally are also benefiting, at least in terms of citations, right? Because we also looked at mobility, who's moving where, which scientists move to that country from that country. Uh, we looked at questions about um, you know, what institutions people were in and so on. But what we found that was extremely interesting is that the more open a country is, that is the more engaged they are internationally, the more they are allowing mobile uh, researchers to come and go, uh, the more that they look to um, bring in knowledge from outside in order to enhance science, the greater their impact. So in other words, what we found is that open countries have stronger science. Yeah, it's interesting that you can point to it so clearly that that's the case. Um, But instinctively to me, it doesn't seem shocking. 
And then, so a few minutes ago when you were introducing the topic, and I know you were only sketching it, um, but you were saying that if you're a national government and you're giving public funding to research, then you want to know that the research is going to benefit your country. Uh, and so researchers self-organizing collaborations across borders might threaten that. And I'm kind of wondering why that might be. So to take your example of a US researcher taking some government money and then choosing to collaborate with someone in Malaysia, say, what's the problem there? It's not a zero-sum game. It's not like the US gets to keep half the knowledge and Malaysia gets the other half. I mean, surely knowledge is knowledge, right? Everyone can have all of it and adding more partners only multiplies it. In theory. Where am I going wrong there? All right. So in communications theory, um, it is uh, it's shown that the more powerful partner will benefit more. So that is, if I know more about a subject and I work with you and um, we do a project together, I'm going to benefit more. I already know more. And so therefore adding knowledge um, doesn't have any diminishing returns. So the the more advanced you are, the more you benefit. Okay, so that's number one. So in fact, you'd have to say the U.S. would benefit more than Malaysia would. And in fact, some of these countries, what I call mezzanine countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, Brazil, are in fact sometimes are wary of international collaboration for that very reason. They feel like they're being taken advantage of and not necessarily gaining. Although I think there's a realization that they gain uh, up to the level of their of their capacity. So the second part of this, though, is diffusion of knowledge. And that is the part that I would um, push back on your comment, right? Because in fact, if uh, we have someone, and, and this has been actually shown, uh, Helena Bernard has done some very interesting work on this and shows that if you don't have a deep uh, in-depth sort of what I call sinking. So you can have this linking effect, right? Where you're linking around the world. Unless you have the ability to sink knowledge locally, um, then you're really not gaining. So um, for example, in Helena Bernard's work, she showed that people uh, were in countries that had a strong high level elite science level, let's say, um, where people are working at international levels and they're, you know, they were educated at Oxford and they're still working with Cambridge and so on. Uh, without a kind of a, a middle level or even a lower level of, let's say, postdocs and doctoral students and master's students and uh, undergrads who have the capacity to absorb the knowledge um, being created by these elites, right, then you lose the knowledge, right? That's what happens in these systems. And so you have this diffusion effect. Now, in the US or UK, we might assume that that's there because that's a part of the way the system has grown up over time. But it is not the case in every country. And, and this is where you see these countries like Malaysia, Indonesia concerned because their famous scientists are connected to, at the world level. The more elite the scientist, the more likely it is they're working at the global level. Okay, they're connected, they're globally connected, and therefore they are very tied in. However, do they have locally um, the ability to diffuse and uh, disseminate their knowledge into the system so that it trickles down and is made locally available and can be made uh, into the kinds of social goods to which you know the um, taxpayer pays. Well, it may look like it's there in some countries because you have these elite named scientists, but the question of the diffusion of knowledge locally, the spillover effect, the spin-off of knowledge into products and services and so on, doesn't occur. So these are parts of the system, right, that are extremely important to be understood at a policy level. So on one hand, I agree with you, in the most developed countries, we would say, hey, great, work with 
somebody from Singapore. That's fantastic. On the other hand, if I am a policymaker um, and um, in a, perhaps a less dense or a less, a less knowledge-rich environment, don't have a knowledge-based economy, don't necessarily have the depth of, of university strengths, then it will matter a lot to me. So even in um, places like um, you know the Midwest and the United States, uh, you might have an elite scientist. Then the question is, you know, why do we have an elite scientist in astrophysics when our economy is about agriculture and um, and you know biosciences? So, you know, these are real decisions that real decision makers have to deal with. All right, good. So now suppose you're advising one of those decision makers, and you explain to them about this new world where no one automatically owns knowledge. It's all this big international ecosystem. What do you suggest they actually do about it? How do they adapt to this new reality? And is it happening, in fact? It's happening. It has happened already in the small, scientifically advanced nations. And that is uh, the Switzerland's of the world, the Netherlands, um, you know, not necessarily the UK. The UK is bigger, uh, I would say, and in a different category. But the small, scientifically advanced nations have already done this. And that is, they have become globally aware. So even if they're not necessarily connected all around the world, they're keeping their finger on the pulse of what new and interesting things are happening around the world. They have created that as a utility. So in other words, government now provides not just the money in the pipeline to go, hey, here's some money, go go do interesting things. Um, they realize that the interesting things are going to be very much enhanced by the extent to which you know uh, what's happening in Brazil or Malaysia, right? And so not everyone has all the time in the world to go running around the world and find out what's happening, what's going on. And, uh, you know, hey, who's doing cool, interesting things on fruit fungus in Vietnam, right? Uh, that it's part of the government's function to help provide the knowledge, right? And infuse science with the knowledge that people need in order to stay at the frontiers. And so, um, you know, my advice as a policy uh, advisor would be to say that instead of a system, now I'm talking more about the U.S. model, where we push money into a pipeline um, with the understanding that at the other end, there'll be smart Americans at the other end ready to catch the knowledge and run with it, create new businesses, new services, and new apps, and so on, right? That's been our model for maybe 60 years in the United States. Um, that world doesn't exist anymore, is my assertion. That, um, in fact, you can put a lot of money into the pipeline and still good things will come out. Knowledge will come out the other end. But it's not just an American standing there at the other side. It is people who are quite knowledgeable to, to keep track of what's happening. So they're going to be there at the other end, catching the knowledge coming out and putting it into goods and services and perhaps even military applications. So it seems like what we have to do, at least in the United States or maybe in, in the advanced countries uh, in general, is to invert the model. So where the model in the past has been, we push money in and resources and infrastructure, we make it available to you. You go do amazing things with that. And still, that's important. However, we have to, in fact, make available the knowledge uh, that people need in order to do that advanced research. Uh, and not just rely on them to go scan the world for new things. So I think Joseph Stiglitz put it best, and that is, he said, scan globally, reinvent locally. Uh, and I agree 100% with that, and not necessarily reinvent, because 
in our case, we're talking about science. And so that means to just, um, you know, really infuse your science with whatever good idea is coming. So there's smart people all around the world. And now they also have the capacity to do world-class science. So we need to keep our finger on um, on all kinds of activities that are going on and what I call a linking and syncing strategy. So you need both. You need to link around the world and find out what's going on, read the papers, meet people, go to conferences. Okay, you've got the linking strategy, but you also need to have the syncing strategy. And it's the syncing strategy that I think is weaker in, let's say, in the United States or perhaps in other advanced scientific nations because they've just assumed that that was going to happen. And it did happen more organically in the past. And it's just not going to happen in the same way in the future. So that part, to be more deliberate about a thinking strategy, is really what I would advise any advanced government, but especially in, in our case, the United States government. Okay, now, so I have another little worry or, or, or question about the implications of what you're describing. Thinking about the concept of science capital, which we've discussed actually a couple of times on this podcast with other guests in the last few months. One conversation I'm thinking of especially is was with uh, the lady who's managing a, a project in Sweden and Denmark to build a big science facility. Yeah, it's called a spallation source, which I think is a word that just made up, but I quite like it. And I asked her why do it? I mean, not scientifically why do it, but why does Europe want to spend all that money in building this thing here in Europe? And one reason she gave was this concept of science capital, that a block, a region that, that can be a world leader in science in some area, also gets some clout that way, like economically or politically, or I suppose on the world stage, diplomatically. So, okay, but now I'm wondering if what you're saying somewhat undermines that, like the model is a bit outdated. If the way to tackle this globalization of knowledge networks that you're describing is to simply embrace it and like as a government, stop trying to do the best science just on your home soil and instead empower your people to seek it out wherever it is and bring it home. Um, if that's all the way the world is now, is there any future, is there any point anymore for a block like the EU or the US or whatever to build itself a big uh, spallation source or particle accelerator or fusion reactor? Does the concept of science capital even apply anymore? So the short answer is yes. <laughs> yes, there's still a reason to invest, right? Just like we're not headless bodies, um, right, running around, and we're not a head on a stick either, right? Um, we know that place matters. Place and locality still matters. And the second thing that matters a lot in science is scale. So if you want to do science, there's some areas of science where you must have the scale of investment needed in order to advance. You are not going to advance in high energy physics without this, you know, spallation, whatever. Uh, you're not going to advance in the nanoscale sciences without a scanning tunneling microscope. And these are expensive investments. Um, you really, and, and there's only one or two seismic shake tables in the world. Uh, one of them is in Japan because it's super expensive. So seismologists go to Japan to shake the table to see what happens, right? Um, and same thing with CERN. People travel to CERN in order to be there, right? Because the scale is important. There are other sciences where the scale is not as important, the scale of, of infrastructure, like for example, mathematics or um, or theoretical physics, 
However, what we find even in those sciences is they're more international over time. They're more connected. So it's not one or the other. I think there's a paradox of connection and geographic concentration. Some of that is needed. And sometimes where it's located really matters uh, and it really makes a difference. Other times uh, it doesn't, right? And so it partly depends on the science itself, partly depends on the scale of the equipment and the cost of that equipment. Um, and certainly we know, as, the, as your interviewee um, said, it sometimes matters a lot that you have the ability, the capacity to do the research locally so that people can get that hands-on experience, the hands-on uh, knowledge um, in order to advance their science. And certainly we see this with industry, that when you move all your high-tech industry uh, offshore, you find that you're not then learning uh, about the mistakes you made in the last generation in order to um, enhance your product for the next generation. So it's something that we're learning about learning. So uh, some learning, and even this year we've done Zoom learning, some Zoom learning will continue and some will not because some things just cannot be done um, over uh, you know a virtual environment and other things can't. So um, so that these are, in fact, some of the um, maybe mysteries still of scientific communication, um, but certainly um, it does matter that you have the investments and that they be distributed in a way that people can get to um, and so that they can visit these places. Yeah, yeah, fair point. I mean, I was, I was kind of thinking, if I'm a seismologist, why do I care if I have to fly out to Japan to, to ride the shake table, which sounds like a lot of fun anyway. But of course, you're right. It's not just me, right? It's my team. It's my students. It's the public who can visit and understand what's going on. Yeah, fair enough. I had a question also about the value of competition, because it seems like competition is is valuable for science, as it has also been for like art and sport and, you know, every area of human endeavor. And historically, a very important dimension of that has been competition between countries or between scientists in different countries. And if we replace that competition with a big, friendly, global collaboration where all the best experts team up, do we not lose something important? So, again, I think we'd have to separate out a little bit the political from the scientific. On the scientific side, there's a lot of cooperation that goes on in science. In fact, there isn't a single scientific description that you could read, even going back historically, where people were working alone and just came up with an idea on their own. You know, even if you read Darwin or, um, you know, Marie Curie, I mean, they didn't work alone in a lab. They were working together with other people who people who challenged them and spurred them on. And I think there's a movement in France called Camille New, right, that that is trying to push forward this idea of like, this is a collective activity. This is not a single person. Um, you know, we, we tend to throw up these heroes of science, but in fact, nobody really ever works alone. And so the collective communication that results in that aha moment of science um, a lot of times comes out of cooperation and collaboration. However, there is a re really great value of competition as well. And so um, I think we know that there are times in science, in fact, quite a lot of times, it's kind of a strange feature of science, that the same finding will be found at the same time in two different places. Um, and so part of it is because the adjacent knowledge is known and therefore you're going to know the next unit of knowledge. So that's one thing. However, there's also a competition factor so that 
people know, for example, when the U.S. was doing the Human Genome Project, um, there was a genome projects going on in several places in the world. And even in the United States, we had two projects. We had a private sector project and a public sector project, and they competed, right? Who's going to be first? Um, so it's so it's somewhat in our nature to compete, you know, faster, better, higher, you know, the Olympics. Um, and, uh, you know, so the competition is, is very useful and can sometimes, uh, you know, really spur people on, um, get them motivated and get them moving uh, forward. So, um, you know, some people call co-optition, right? Or, uh, you know, um, the sense of um, we're competing and cooperating at the same time. I think one of the things we saw with uh, the advance of technological age as we came into, let's say, the 1970s, 1980s, that um, there is a level, a platform, when we call it now platform technologies, uh, a level of, uh, of technology where cooperation is really, really a good thing uh, and doesn't uh, bite into anybody's profits or, you know, our end goals, um, but that we have to have this kind of base technology in order to advance and make uh, differentiated products uh, and services. So, uh, so I think that we're always negotiating that fine line between um, cooperation and competition. And, um, you know, in different sciences, it's different, different technologies, it's different, uh, but it exists all over. And I don't think we could say it's either or, it's both. Yeah, okay, thanks. So now then, here's the last item on my little shopping list of things that cross my mind when I thought about what you were saying. Regulation. If science is national, it can be regulated and overseen by national governments. If it's international, if it's globally organized and, and also organized like informally outside of national institutional frameworks, how do we regulate it? So this is something that early uh, scholars of science um, discussed um, in which they recognize that to some extent, some great extent, science needs to be self-policed, right? Or self, uh, they need to have social norms that govern how science operates in part because policy makers, and they certainly well know this, that they don't understand how uh, the science is done and they can't necessarily come in and tell scientists how to operate. So as a result, what we see and, and we hope for, and that is that there are strong norms of behavior uh, and expectation within the scientific community that govern people's behavior with a little g. Um, and so therefore, there's peer review, there are peer review panels, there are um, tenure reviews, there are conferences, and so on. And at all of these levels, the idea is that, uh, you know, science is self-governing. Now, we see that break down quite a lot. I think, um, you know, there's retractions, there's um, fraud in science, uh, there are um, plagiarized materials that come and go. Uh, and as we see newcomers, a lot of times coming into the system, they don't understand and they'll plagiarize or they'll copy somebody else's data and, um, you know, change a little bit here and there and, and try to pass it off as their own. But the system does tend to catch those things. And so, uh, at least in the United States, and I, I believe in other countries too, there's a sense that maybe hands-off is still better than trying to come in and regulate the system, um, in part because, uh, the self-regulation has tended to work pretty well. Uh, but there are challenges uh, at the edges of that, um, such as open science, 
uh, and open um, platforms uh, for data sharing. There are, of course, many ethical issues that occur at the edges, like the um, cloned babies, uh, you know, aug augmenting humans um, that, you know, certainly possible and that we've considered in science fiction for many years in different ways and thought about the implications of different decisions. Um, and those things, I, I do think that at times when the political system will pick up on things like that, um, it's probably a halfway good thing, although it sometimes can be seen in the science community as uh, as a negative if they attract political attention. But um, I do think that we're constantly challenged uh, as a community um, to uh, to ensure that uh, the self-governance is operating effectively, because if indeed we do attract regulation, it's almost always less efficient and less effective than self-governance. Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll buy that on most of it. But my, my worry is not so much that self-governance won't catch the problems that, that top-down regulation would. My worry is more that if we're talking about a global scientific community, we're putting a lot of trust in that being a single community with a single set of norms and like a robust one enough to do the role entirely self-standing, as it were. I mean, perhaps this is just my, my inner socialist <laughs> worrying about the lack of state control. Um, but let me, let me put it this way. Surely the more your research community reaches across diverse countries with diverse cultures and traditions and even diverse sets of norms, the more challenging it will be for it to kind of self-regulate according to a so-called like universal scientific set of norms, if such a thing even exists. And, and I don't want this to sound like hand-wringing about oh no, we're losing the Anglo-American liberal values or whatever. It's not that really. It's more about coherence. Like for a single community to be able to self-regulate, it has to have some coherent idea or other about what it's doing. Well, research shows that the scientific system tends to work on reputation and reward. So if your reputation is critical to being able to continue to do the science that you want to do and to acquire the resources you need in order to do that, then you really must protect your reputation fairly strongly. You really need to pay attention to your reputation. And, and for a nation, that's the case too. So we've seen China come under um, opprobrium from the system as a whole, as um, we saw a number of um, cases of plagiarism, fraud, uh, data stealing, um, fake journals, predatory journals coming out. And, you know, I think the Chinese Academy of Sciences has been actively trying to find these problems and to um, remind people of norms and to stop people from um, abusing the system. So it is a reputation economy to a great extent. Um, and to that end, you know, you were talking about science capital. Individuals also carry around that kind of science capital. So if you don't have it, you're not going to be invited to the next party. Um, so it, it seems to me, I, and that may be perhaps too idealistic on my part or too optimistic. The question is whether it is in, in such uh, disarray that it needs to be regulated from a command and control uh, style system. 
And I think we know that, you know, anytime you're talking about research, you don't know what you don't know. And so anytime you're going to try to impose guidelines and requirements on that system, you're going to make it less efficient, just as we started out this discussion about the European Union's requirements for including uh, people that you might not necessarily have included. You know you're going to reduce efficiency. And in that case, there was a social goal. And in the end, over time, it's really worked out. I think with research, if we had this uh, added on kind of additional social goals uh, of making sure no one ever uh, commits plagiarism, no one ever steals someone else's data, uh, no one ever um, tries to commit fraud, then I think we would be strangling off some of the creative energies that make the system produce all these wonderful goods that we value. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of analogous to the debate separately about um, the degree to which policymakers should be steering the direction of research, like like its topics and objectives, um, and the pendulum that swings between valuing academic freedom uh, and then also directing research for particular objectives. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, let, let's zoom in now to the level of the individual scientist. As it seems like in, in the brave new world you've described, the skill set that an up-and-coming researcher needs is perhaps a bit different from how it would have been a generation or two ago. What do you think are the traits of a successful researcher these days? Some parts of the system remain the same. And that is, you need to do good work in order to be recognized. The more you're connected to other people who are doing good work, uh, the better off you're going to be. In fact, we see that Nobel Prize winners are very highly likely to have worked for other Nobel Prize winners, right? And so, again, we have this rich get richer um, environment in science, and that continues to operate the same way. Uh, you know, you you need to get in there, you need to communicate, you need to do interesting work, you need to connect with smart people, you need to travel. Uh, right. And this year we haven't been able to travel. So it's going to be interesting to see what that does to scientific creativity. But that part hasn't really changed. Uh, the part that has changed is that um, many of these sciences are getting more and more expensive to conduct, just as you were talking about the expense of some of these pieces of equipment, um, the data that you have to buy in order to do your work, you have to have a supercomputer in order to analyze it. That part is challenging to um, up-and-coming young researchers uh, because it's just that much harder to get access to the resources that you need in order to do your work. And these kinds of um, shifts uh, to require expensive infrastructure to do research challenge the system as a whole because we know that we need these young people and their brains and their energy in order to advance science. In some sciences, right, the good stuff is done by the youngest people. So uh, we know that that's critical. Uh, that is something that is a political problem and really must be considered at the political level. Um, and, and that is that, you know, where do we put the infrastructure? Where do we put the equipment? Uh, where do we place it in a way so that people can have access to it? How do we make sure people can travel to, to get to it? Can we do it virtually uh, in some way? Because we know, of course, in, in research, right, back to Polanyi, that tacit knowledge is a very important part of basic research. And that is just gained from experience. 
So if people aren't able to get to the synchrotron, right, or the scanning tunneling microscope, or they can't buy into a $10,000 database um, in order to do the work, that's a real limitation. So I know, at least in the United States, one of the things that's being considered is just new ways of funding uh, early career researchers so that they are able to not so much compete uh, because the competition can be, um, you know, truly wearing psychologically and emotionally wearing. But how do we ensure that people are able to get the resources they need to do that early career research? So there are interesting and creative ideas being shared about how do we incentivize this better? Okay. Before we finish, I think we must, as always, mention COVID. So so insert here all the increasingly uh, cliche comments about a global experiment and blah, blah, blah. Let's take that as read. So now, do you have any observations about how the newly global scientific community has responded to this new global threat? Do you think we did any better because we're so international now um, than we would have done otherwise? And have there been any surprises? Well, there have been surprises, although, of course, like any research once you look at it, you think, why was I surprised by that? But um, one of the things that we saw is how much the system consolidated around elites. Um, I was talking about elitism uh, and uh, reputation um, about that science community in general. And what we saw in COVID is almost elitism on steroids, because what we saw at the very beginning of COVID is that... Um, researchers from the United States and China reconnected almost immediately. They were already connected. They knew one another. They had been working together on coronavirus. And so um, they reconnected almost immediately, did some very important early work on uh, on the, the virus itself. Then we see the UK coming into the system very early, also very uh, strong in virology. And so uh, they come in. So then we see this kind of three-way, mostly Oxford, uh, and then several elite universities in the United States and same in China, right? And so they reconnect. And um, at the very earliest publications that came out, came out from people that mostly knew one another already, that had resources to do the work. Uh, and they were also from elite institutions and therefore highly trusted. So that's just the way the system is, right? If somebody from Harvard says something, it's more trusted than, you know, somebody from um, some other place. And we saw that, for example, developing countries completely dropped out of the system almost for the whole year. So uh, on one hand, we raced quickly for solutions. So that was great. But when you go fast, you have to go lean. And so we saw teams were smaller. Um, there were fewer nations involved. It was much more likely to be people that already knew one another uh, who didn't have to then go through a whole big thing of getting to know one another and understanding how people work and so on. So that's what we saw in the year. I was, the year produced tremendous numbers of publications of all different kinds. Uh, but we did see politics coming into it, and that was in a couple of different ways. In April, around April, uh, we saw that uh, the Chinese government required Chinese researchers to submit any work on COVID through the ministry. And that slowed everything down um, from China. And China, where, which had been a very important participant in the earliest days, uh, really began to fade away and, and continued through the year to fade away, while other nations like Italy, Spain, and France really uh, roar into the COVID research uh, system uh, around the third month, uh, we start to see China kind of fading away. The other aspect that we saw that 
were really surprised by, and that is that the number of publications from a country were correlated with number of cases of COVID, right? Rather than the money that went and got went into it or how much they already knew about COVID uh, or coronavirus. Um, and that was surprising. Like we were, we still can't quite make, make sense out of that. Like, why was that? And, you know, uh, one explanation is just altruism. You know, people wanted to help. And if that's what they could do to help, uh, you know, they were, they were motivated to do it. And so that may be, I mean, it may be that it just comes down to human goodness. So <laughs> I hope so. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, now you mentioned China, and I think I should probably have asked you this sooner, because I now suspect, thinking back, that the example of China has maybe been uh, an undercurrent to some of the other things you've said during this conversation. So perhaps you'd like to say a bit more about how China fits into things, not just COVID, where it's obviously played a central role, but more generally. You know, the role of China in global science is a very important and extremely interesting change that's occurred. Uh, we have never seen a country come into the science system at such a rapid rate as China ever uh, in the world, the history of the world. Um, and the way that they've come in and the, uh, the rapid rise in numbers and quality um, coming from China is very, very interesting. And certainly we see in the United States at the political level, a great concern about that, uh, about what that means and how that um, may challenge um, the leaders in certain areas um, in terms of their ability to lead and or turn that into products, processes and services that provide for the public good. So uh, the role of China, and in, in fact, for the United States, at least, is probably a good one because Again, we talked about competition versus cooperation. China is now the United States' largest cooperative partner in science, knocking off the UK, which was our largest partner for many, many decades. Uh, and yet, uh, at the same time, there's a concern about China. And, um, you know, are they kind of same question that we were asking earlier? You know, are they kind of sucking us dry and taking all our knowledge and you know, running away with it? Uh, but if you look over the history of science, what you see is that um, the scientific leader has also often been a military hegemon or a military power. Uh, and there seems to be a close relationship, correlation, let's say. It's hard to say there's a cause from one to the other. And yet we can see, if you look over history, that um, scientific knowledge and uh, power is highly correlated to military and political leadership. So I think there is, and you know, where Japan challenged the United States in the 1980s, uh, it was never going to be a, a political giant uh, in the same way that China wishes to be. So I think we have a reason to be concerned uh, about China. Uh, over time, they're trying to adopt and trying to operate um, by many of the social norms that other countries are using. Uh, and have used, and the, these rules aren't developed by any single nation. These rules are just the, the operating rules of scientific communication. But we see that China has adopted many of them and is conducting peer review and is funding things through uh, national uh, science foundations and so on um, in models similar to um, Western models. On the other hand, um, you know, there's a great unknown, and that is um, you know, the civil military fusion in China that is part of their science system, um, you know, is of true concern. Uh, and not just um, from an American political aspect, it's a, just a concern in general. 
All right. And on that note of warning, our time is almost up. And I'm so grateful to you, uh, Professor Caroline Wagner, for your time and for your expertise. I have actually been starting to worry that every time you speak to someone for this podcast, the conversation opens up a whole new box of fascinating stuff that would take like many more episodes to do justice to. Um, and in your case, I think that's really more than one box. <laughs> so I don't think my job will ever be done. But that's my problem, not yours. I'm just trying to say thank you. Thank you. It's been a really uh, stimulating conversation. Uh, and I certainly hope that listeners enjoy it too. I'm completely confident they will. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by Sapea. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.